Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So uh, we've been on this podcast for a while and, and twice in that time. I've gotten a note that just turned out to be from a college friend. That's so who, funny. Yeah, who didn't know I was on this podcast. Um, and, and then went, wait, I think that's, it is. Uh, and so the first time it was my friend Dave. This was way back after our episode on the princess who swallowed the glass piano. I never answered you. Hi, Dave. What a jerk you are. <laughs> well, it was a comment on our blog, and we were having that weird blog comment problem. We had a lot of issues with that. Yeah. Technical difficulties, please stand by forever. Forever. <laughs> um, this time, it was Hayden, and Hayden was probably the most enthusiastic student of history I knew in college, and was way into military history. So, I jumped at the chance to ask him for some military history suggestions, which brings us to today's topic, uh, which was suggested by Hayden, and it is the Angel of Mons. Uh, so the Battle of Mons was one of World War One's earliest battles. We're really rapidly approaching the 100th anniversary of both the start of World War One and of this battle itself. And in the months after the battle, these stories started to spread that a supernatural presence, which was described either as St. George or as some ghostly archers or as angels, had covered the British army as it withdrew from battle and had completely prevented the army from being destroyed by the Germans. That sounded like way too good of a story to pass up, especially since at the time this uh, tale became enormously inspiring and heartening to both the troops on the Western Front uh, and the civilians at home in Britain. It sits right at this intersection of folklore and fiction and patriotism and propaganda. And it's a story that persisted for years and years after the war was over. So for a little bit of background, this is mostly to tell you where in the timeline we are. Yeah. Because World War One was complicated. Yes. There were many, many factors that led up to the start of World War One. Uh, but the thing that is often cited as the final tipping point and sort of the real catalyst for the actual events to unfold uh, was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and his wife. And this took place in Sarajevo, Bosnia on June 28th of 1914. Austria suspected that Serbia was behind this assassination. So a month later, Austria declared war on Serbia. And just a few days after that, Russia, which was one of Serbia's allies, announced that it was mobilizing its forces. And a day later, Germany declared war on Russia. So it was almost like a domino effect of one thing happening after another. Uh, and then Germany declared war on France on one day and Belgium the next. So Germany got very enthusiastic about its dominoes. Uh, and their next step was to invade the neutral Belgium to get better access to targets in France. That day, which was August the 4th, Britain declared war on Germany. And a whole lot of more declarations of war happened after this point over the next few weeks. But at this point in the story, Britain, France, and Germany are really what's important. And Germany's plan was to send an enormous army through Belgium and into France, cutting off the Allies, surrounding the city, and winning the war in a matter of weeks. This movement of German troops through Belgium and France led to a series of battles known as the Battles of the Frontiers. These all took place along the Western Front, and they all started toward the end of August 1914, very early on in the war. August 22nd, in particular, was devastating for the French, who lost about 27,000 soldiers in a single day. 
And the Battle of Mons, which took place on August 23rd of 1914, was part of the Battles of the Frontiers. And in this battle, the British Expeditionary Forces, or the BEF, joined the fighting and met the German army in the field of battle for the first time of the war. The BEF had a total fighting force of about 70,000 men in continental Europe at this point, and about half of them were at the Battle of Mons. Sir John French was commander-in-chief of the BEF, and the men under his command included both infantry and cavalry. This was a highly trained army, and many of the men had previous combat experience from the Boer Wars in South Africa. And just as a side note, it's a little awkward to have a guy named French and the French in this one episode of an audio podcast. Uh, But it would sound kind of silly to call him Sir John, which I did consider doing (laughs) for like a second. I suggested giving him a wacky nickname, but Tracy did not go for it. Um, So uh, we're going to do our best to make it clear whether we're talking about uh, Commander-in-Chief John French or the The French. French. (laughs) So the original plan was for the BEF troops to join French forces near Charleroi, where fighting from one of the other battles of the frontiers was still ongoing. And together, the French and British would try to break through the German lines. A number of factors actually derailed this plan. They included a late start for the British troops and a generally contentious relationship between Commander French and General Charles Lanrezac, who was in command of the French 5th Army at Charleroi. So instead, the BEF and the French 5th Army wound up facing the Germans from two different positions instead of united, with the French troops in France and the British troops in Belgium. In Belgium, the BEF's objective was to slow or stop the advance of the German army. And to that end, they established a position along the Mons-Conde Canal. And the canal itself was about 60 feet wide. And in one area, it made a sharp curve. And this formed a jutting promontory of land, which is also called a salient. And the northern part of this salient was where the German First Army, which outnumbered the British two to one, focused its attack as it tried to break through the British defenses. The Germans started shelling and attacking with infantry at about 9 a.m. General Alexander von Kluck of Germany didn't really make the greatest use of his numerical advantage. He was kind of in a hurry. He wanted to break through the British lines as fast as possible, so he sent large numbers of infantry in very tight formations to attack the salient. And there were a lot of really expert marksmen among the British soldiers. Uh, they were so efficient at firing and reloading that the German officers allegedly reported back that the British were using machine guns. The British marksmen inflicted huge casualties on the shoulder-to-shoulder German troops. The British also had a trenching device with them, which let them reposition themselves and dig a new trench for cover in response to where the Germans focused their shelling. And thanks to all of this, uh, the BEF was able to hold the salient for six solid hours. But eventually, the German assault, as they adjusted their approach not to be such easy targets for these marksmen, finally started to erode the British defenses. On top of that, late in the day, General Lanrezac ordered his men to retreat from Charleroi. And this meant that the British troops were at risk of being surrounded by the Germans and cut off with no means of escape. So Commander French gave the order to withdraw. And they didn't just retreat. Uh, The British actually continued to fight as they fell back. And in the end, they did slow the Germans by a day. But that uh, small success cost them about 1,600 British troops. 
for the British, this defeat was crushing and demoralizing. As a society, the British believed their army was the best and most highly trained in the entire world. And yet, in their first battle in continental Europe in almost 100 years, they had been forced to withdraw after just a few hours. News reports in Britain in the following days characterized their army as retreating and broken and characterized the Germans as a force that, quote, could no more be stopped than the waves of the sea. And meanwhile, the Germans, uh, as the exact counter to how the British were feeling about this situation, were completely emboldened by their victory at Mons and elsewhere in the battles of the frontiers. So all of that probably made the idea of there having been some kind of supernatural and perhaps godly intervention quite appealing. Deus Ex Machina sounds pretty good in that situation. Yeah, and we will talk a little more about that after a brief word from a sponsor. So to return to the story, in the months following the Battle of Mons, stories spread among the British troops at the front and among the people back at home in Britain that an angelic figure or maybe even an entire angelic army had covered the British withdrawal at Mons and basically saved the day. And some described a host of glowing heavenly archers. Uh, Others talked of more of like a holy shield that kept the Germans from advancing. Or perhaps it was St. George, patron saint of the British fighting forces, and an army called up from the Battle of Agincourt, which was the decisive British victory in the Hundred Years' War, which we talked about briefly in our Poitiers episode. We did. So whatever the exact version, the story of the angel was really widespread and widely believed back home and among the troops. People started to hold it up as evidence that God was on the side of the Allies. Clergy used it in their sermons, and it was printed and reprinted in different publications uh, as different sources picked it up. On the home front, not believing in the angel became sort of unpatriotic. Uh, One account of the angel was printed on July 31st of 1915 in the London Evening News. And this was reportedly told to Phyllis Campbell, who was a volunteer nurse working with the troops in France. Her source was Lancashire Fusilier, who said, We all saw it. First, there was a sort of yellow mist, like sort of rising before the Germans as they came up to the top of the hill. Come on like a solid wall they did, springing out of the earth just solid, no end to them. I just gave up. No use fighting the whole German race, thinks I. It's all up with us. The next minute comes this funny cloud of light, and when it clears off, there's a tall man with yellow hair in golden armor on a white horse, holding his sword up and his mouth open as if he was saying, Come on, boys, I'll put the kibosh on the devils. The minute I saw it, I knew we were going to win. It fair bucked me up. As versions of the story floated around that featured ghostly bowmen and St. George and the descriptions like the one that we just read. One piece was printed in the All Saints, which was a parish magazine from Bristol, and it really cemented the idea that it was angels, specifically. This one cited a Miss Marble, who was reportedly retelling what she had heard from two of her friends. One of these friends was not a religious man, and she said his entire perspective on life had been changed by seeing the angels. In this version, the angels were protectors that shielded the troops, not attackers attacking the Germans. The printing of the All Saints that contained the story sold out and people clamored for more copies. Miss Marble's rendition of the story was one that was picked up in one form or another again and again. But both of these sources and all of the many other purportedly first-hand and second-hand accounts that circulated about a supernatural event having taken place at Mons 
have some problems. So Nurse Campbell, from the first example, was the daughter of a novelist and a writer of ghost stories herself. She'd had a collection of ghost stories published under a pseudonym before the war. In her war writing, she also seems to have reprinted anything anyone said to her, no matter how far-fetched it was, no matter how obviously false it was, without fact-checking or really considering what was said. And Miss Marble, from the second version that we just talked about, was a real person, but when the Society of Psychical Research tried to investigate her story and get her to name her sources, she started backtracking a little bit. She said they weren't really men that she knew, uh, that she had, in fact, no idea who they had been. And even as her story fell apart and things that were crucial to its believability were disproved, people kept accepting the story as fact. Papers and pamphlets that picked up her story later on just omitted her name, sort of, to get rid of that whole credibility issue. Yeah, and these are just really two examples. There were lots and lots of different versions of the story, with different people being cited as their sources. A lot of them have this similarly murky anonymity in who people were actually hearing the the story from, or their dates are kind of fuzzy, um, or, you know, it, it's seems kind of like an urban legend. Yeah, Um, third and fourth hand. Yeah, but there are so many of them, and they were spread so widely and believed so fully that it's tempting to say that surely that must have been based in some kind of grain of truth of what happened at the battlefield at Mons. Except there is a little problem. Right. Which is that they all seem to draw from a very short story, which is called The Bowman. And this was published in the London Evening News on September 29th of 1914. The absolute earliest reference in writing to a supernatural event at Mons. We're going to kind of talk about some theories for how this uh, story became repurposed as fact uh, after another quick break. That sounds grand. Arthur Matchen was a British fantasy author who was making his ends meet by writing for newspapers. His short story, The Bowman, was printed a little over a month after the Battle of Mons, and it's the story of a soldier at an unspecified battle on the front. But this battle takes place in the story on a salient, as the Battle of Mons did. And in the face of an overwhelming advance from the Germans, the character in this story remembers a prayer to St. George that he saw on a plate at a vegetarian restaurant back home. And he says the prayer that he remembers from the plate, and this supernatural form appears along with a host of archers. I want this story to be rewritten in the modern day by Chuck Palahniuk. That's just all I'm saying. It just seems right up his alley. Uh, the story goes... As the soldier heard these voices, he saw before him, beyond the trench, a long line of shapes with a shining about them. They were like men who drew the bow, and with another shout, their cloud of arrows flew singing and tingling through the air toward the German hosts. And in the last line of the story, uh, this is uh, St. George and the Agincourt bowmen who came to the rescue. This story was not labeled as fiction, but it certainly reads like fiction. But even so, people started to write to Matchen in the newspaper to ask if it was true. Spiritualist publications wanted to reprint the story as fact, and they were trying to get the names of the sources. It kind of reminds me of the uh, probably overhyped War of the Worlds. That's exactly what I was thinking of, too. Yeah. Um, So, 
this story of the angels didn't spread like wildfire right away. I mean, there was immediate interest, but it was not immediately established as fact in people's minds. It took trench warfare to really do that. As the situation in the Western Front turned into a stalemate and the last of the trenches went down in November of 1914, people's interest in the Bowman started to revive. It was a story that really gave people hope. Uh, it became more and more obvious to people that this was going to be a really long, really deadly war. And the idea that an angel had had come to help became the sort of wartime urban legend. And the whole time as this story was being reprinted in various versions all over newspapers, pamphlets, and books, Arthur Matchin insisted that he was 100% the only source for this story, and that the story was, in fact, 100% fiction. And as demand rose for patriotic and inspiring writings, he republished the story in a book called The Bowman in August of 1915. And he also wrote a new preface to the story explaining that it was absolutely fictional. This book sold 3,000 copies in a single day, and it was eventually translated into six languages. And this popularity kicked off a big round of people trying to prove that the story was, in spite of what he said, completely real. One journalist named Harold Begbie even publicly argued that Matchin must have had a telepathic impression from one of the dying soldiers of the apparition that he had seen, and that this telepathic moment must have inspired the story of the Bowman. There's also some evidence that the British government tacitly approved of this story, or at least the effects that it was having on people's morale and patriotism. So some months after this a uh, short story was originally published. Letters from the front started to come home that made reference to people having actually seen this ghost. And these are stories that all made it through the censors who were going through censoring soldiers' letters. Um, the British government press censor also allowed it in the press. And there's even some evidence that this wasn't simply tacit approval, that the army and the government actually played an active part in bolstering the story. Brigadier General John Charteris wrote either a journal entry or a letter to his wife. Uh, sources cite this uh, piece of writing both ways. And it was dated September 5th of 1914, weeks before the publication of The Bowman. And it reads, quote, The story of the Angel of Mons going strong through the second corps of how the Angel of the Lord on the traditional white horse, clad all in white with flaming sword, faced the advancing Germans at Mons and forbade their further progress. So on the surface, it seems like, well, this obviously predates the short story that was published in the newspaper. However, this little snippet is mixed in with descriptions of events that definitely happened much, much later than the Bowman's publication. The copy of this piece of writing that survives today is also from a collection of things that were compiled and edited by his wife. So there's not an original document that can be authenticated and uh, and examined. So she basically said, I got this letter dated this, or I found this piece of writing dated this date, and it said this. So uh, in addition to, we're not really sure how much editing his wife did, uh, the Brigadier General was the BEF's chief intelligence officer, and the spread of information and disinformation was part of his job. So it's entirely within the realm of possibility that he fudged the date on this document on purpose to add more authenticity to this story and to try to establish a reference in print that predated the Bowman's original publication. And we know that uh, Charteris had this sort of maneuver in him 
already. He put disinformation to use during the war. He's the one that started the rumor of the German corpse factory, where the Germans were purportedly boiling the bodies of the dead down into animal feed or munitions. So he was adept at sort of seeding stories and spreading concepts that were patently false. Yeah. This story continued to be told and retold and re-embellished long after World War I was over. In the 30s, newspapers in London and New York printed this version of a, the story that cited a German officer who claimed that the British had projected an image of an angel onto large screens to kind of deter the German advance, which that did not happen. That definitely did not happen. It's a lot of tech <laughs> to work up. For the battlefield. In the battle on the fly. And then Tupac showed up. (laughs) It just seems like so completely crazy to claim. But nowadays, I think you could almost claim that. And people would be like, oh, maybe. Yeah. But at this point, that would have been a really tall order technologically. Yeah. Uh, No source that predates Machin's story has ever been verified. And in the end, it really seems to have drawn from a combination of religious faith, hope, patriotism, a tradition of British folklore... You know, stories of St. George coming to the aid of troops go all the way back to the First Crusade. Yeah. So it, it really seems like uh, Machen's short story got picked up and then folded back around in people's minds as a real event that had happened. Well, it filled a psychological need of the entire country. Absolutely. Um, World War One, especially as, as people who had thought that it was going to be a fast war that would be over quickly when it became clear that it was going to be long, slow, bloody trench warfare uh, experience that like that there was definitely a, a huge need for people to have something positive to believe in. Yeah, it's easy to see the appeal. Yeah. I mean, there's a need there. Uh, with that, I need you to read some listener mail. I think that's a good plan. I need it. Uh, this is from Arthur. And Arthur says, thank you for your episode on the Treaty of Waitangi. As a Paheka New Zealander, i.e. a Kiwi of European descent, I've always been proud that our country was formed by compromise rather than conquest. And the ongoing work of the Waitangi Tribunal has been instrumental in attempting to heal some of the wounds of our colonial history. I was disappointed that more time was not given over to the land wars that followed the signing of the treaty and the intensification of European settlement in Aotearoa. Doubly so because New Zealand's history syllabus at school has traditionally forgotten about this crucial period in our nation's history and rather has preferred to highlight the more palatable aspects of the Treaty of Waitangi's story. Between 1845 and 1872, there were a series of conflicts, rebellions, and guerrilla wars waged between the British colonial administration and a number of iwi or tribes of Maori. The most intense fighting took place in the North Island region of Taranaki in 1860, and again when the government invaded Taranaki in 1863. The first Taranaki War in 1680 sparked was sparked by a dispute over le- the legitimacy of a land sale of a 240-hectare block of land and was instigated by Governor Thomas Brown, who was eager to suppress anti-settler chiefs who belonged to the uh, Kingitanga, or Maori King Movement, a confederation of tribes who opposed land sales and who held to the Maori translation of the, of the treaty. The first battle was between 500 government troops, comprised of professional soldiers, local militia forces, and volunteers, and 80 Maori warriors led by Weremu Kingi. Uh, I looked for pronunciations of all of these words and names, and I could not find 
audio pronunciations for all of them, so I apologize if I say any of these wrong. Uh, the Maori had constructed a temporary disposable fort, or pa, in a strategic position, commanding road access to the disputed land. Despite a full day of bombardment by 200 howitzer rounds and small arms fire, the Maori suffered no casualties and abandoned the pa that night. Having proved to other iwi in the area that the colonial forces were the aggressors in the conflict, Weimukingi was able to call on other tribes for assistance, and the war expanded to involve 3,500 British and New Zealand troops and 1,600 Maori fighters for the Taranaki Iwi and the wider Kingitangi movement, which was based in Waikato but had influence throughout the country. The first battle set the tone for the rest of the war with the colonial force seeking to besiege fixed fortifications and engage the Maori in a traditional war of set battles, while the Maori would construct ingenious cheap paw from wood and flax lined with trench systems, shooting positions that allowed defenders to fire under the fort's walls and artillery bunkers, all designed to withstand artillery fire and musket shot for a short time and then be abandoned. In this way, the Maori were able to resist the colonial forces for a year, and the first stage in the war ended in something of a draw, with the Maori winning a symbolic victory by having refused to submit to British rule. However, this only led to a brutal invasion of the Waikato and Taranaki regions in 1963. Over 14,000 imperial troops engaged in a six-year campaign of land confiscation, forcing both rebel and loyalist Maori from their lands and clearing the captured territory for white settlement in an effort to punish and dominate the Maori people. Roughly 16,000 square kilometers was taken, or nearly 6% of New Zealand's total landmass, and over a 1,000 Maori were killed and many more forcibly relocated. In time, the Waitangi Tribunal would find that this was an illegal war of aggression instigated by the Crown and award the affected iwi a settlement package worth over $141 million New Zealand dollars. A large sum, but considering that the confiscated land is worth over $2 billion today, the Crown got off lightly. Race relations in New Zealand today continue to be strained by the events of our colonial past. Maori continue to grapple with the legacy of colonialism and suffer from poverty, poor health outcomes, and a sort of lingering low-grade racism that many white New Zealanders perpetuate almost unconsciously. A popular strain of political rhetoric employed by our conservative right-wing politicians will periodically call for the Waitangi Tribunal to be wound up and, quote, fair and final settlements made to Maori iwi, never mind that entire towns and cities and thousands of acres of profitable farmland owned by white New Zealanders only exist today because of the widespread land confiscations perpetuated by their ancestors. The iwi who received tribunal settlements have mostly used these funds to invest in businesses such as fisheries, forestry, and real estate, and use the proceeds from these businesses to provide scholarships and investment for Maori economic growth and welfare. However, the ongoing overrepresentation of Maori in poverty and crime statistics continues. I hate to give too bleak a picture of the heritage of the Treaty of Waitangi. It was certainly a landmark document, and I am very proud that our country was founded in a spirit of compromise. I often say that New Zealand doesn't have a constitution as much as an ongoing argument. And certainly the legacy of that spirit of cooperation has had a profound impact on our history, culture, and national character. But it would be remiss to neglect to mention the way the early colonial government broke faith with the Maori and the ongoing impacts that this history has today. Thanks again for an enjoyable and informative podcast. You are sincerely Arthur, who wrote to us from New Zealand. Thank you very much, Arthur. Uh, we've had one other listener mail about the Treaty of Waitangi episode, and 
it was actually kind of a difficult decision to, to figure out where to end that podcast because we alluded to the fact in the podcast that to try to talk about what happened next, we would need to talk about the entire history of New Zealand. That happens a lot. With, well, you know, like we'll talk about the Hundred Years' War, and that's something that had reverberations for you know centuries. Yeah, and we'll also we also get a lot of really well-meaning letters from people who say, "Can you do an episode on the history of a place, yeah. like a nation?" <laughs> yeah. No, we cannot do an episode on the history of a nation. Yeah. I kind of want people to examine their perceptions of, like, who has a worthwhile history to talk about when they make requests like that. Yeah. Well, all history is worthwhile to talk about, but you can't take a chunk that big and really get something worthwhile out of it. No. It's too broad. We cannot gloss over the entire history of a nation in one episode. And that, (laughs) that was sort of trying to figure out where to end the Treaty of Waitangi episode without it feeling like we were like glossing over huge parts of things yeah. was was difficult because definitely to try to talk about the effects that the treaty had, you would have to talk about many, 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 many other events that are all worth having their own podcast on their own. So That's we, the trick about history. Yeah, I know. Everything kind of affects things that come after it. Yeah. So, so and in this case, it was the thing that founded a nation, so it definitely... It really affected things. Right. Yeah. So, uh, thank you so much to Arthur and to the other people who have written about other events um, that happened after this. They are all things that are definitely, like, they could warrant their own episodes, and as... The world is very big. I cannot say when we will get to return to New Zealand history, but there's so much other stuff to talk about. It's certainly not for lack of desire to do so. No. (laughs) Uh, If you would like to write to us with uh, more New Zealand history or some stuff about World War I or whatever you would like, you can. We are at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Our Facebook is Facebook.com slash History, and our Twitter is History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you'd like to learn a little more about how some, you know, ideas that could explain how the story of an angel became so entrenched uh, in the British consciousness, you can come to our parent website. That's HowStuffWorks.com. Put the word Urban Legends in the search bar, and you will find how Urban Legends work. Uh, you can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, to find show notes and uh, archives of all the episodes and lots of other fascinating stuff. So you can visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com.